Romans chapter 8, 18 through 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I still like this text. I really do. I mean, I still like Romans chapter 8, even with this passage. I don't know about you, but I still like it. <laughs> um, I know that maybe uh, some people are thinking, well, I kind of like Romans chapter 8 until we got to this particular moment, but I really like it. And if I asked you what your favorite verse was in this particular passage here, you'd probably go with me, maybe as I did when I used to read this the very first time, many times I would go with Romans chapter 8 verse 28, right? Which says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's actually one of the most famous verses that everybody grabs hold of, and we love that verse because it's like, yeah, it's the home run. That's what God says. He works with us, and it's good. But when you're in the midst of chaos, when you're in the midst of a struggle, when you have depression, when you're in the middle of pain, when you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. As Brittany was praying through our pastoral prayer, saying that it's really important just to, as things are just clicking along and moving along, just to pause for a second and breathe in, you sometimes just think, can you even actually take the time to breathe in? Do you really feel that God is really hearing you and speaking to you in the midst of all of that? Do you read this text and does it resonate with you? Do you say, for we know that God loves us and all things work together for the good of it? It's gonna be okay. 
just hang in there? Or do you think to yourself, I don't know, I read this verse and I'm not too sure. If you're new today, we are in the middle of this sermon series called Saints, and we're studying through the book of Romans, and uh, we are in particular studying Romans chapter 8 and, verse, and chapter 9 for this series of Saints. And as we launched the chapter, verses chapter 8, we started at the beginning with no condemnation. And the church said, amen. Well, a few thought said amen. They were like very excited about that. I, I know that you secretly felt that way. So just, you know, just nod silently. That's very affirming, good. And then we jump next into the, the passage of Romans as it continued all the way through, and, and we talked about how Paul says, yeah, and then not only are you not condemned, but you have been adopted into the family of God. You are a son, which is the best title he could give because then you claim all of the rights of being a son and an heir, and then you become children of God, and you're adopted in the family of God. And the church said, Oh, you could say it, amen, as well. And they were dead, and this is great. So everybody was like, hey, that's fantastic. And last week, we celebrated that we're forgiven, which is fantastic. And everybody knows that with forgiveness, you have reconciliation and trust that Jesus offers instantly. He says, I am willing to throw it all in. We, of course, we, we take our jolly old time about it. We love forgiveness. Then we'll have a little bit of reconciliation and then trust about 17 years later uh, because we just need a little bit of time to build that up. Uh, and we have all sorts of little tests that we do secretly and openly and privately. But uh, God says with the power of the Holy Spirit, you can build with forgiveness, you can build reconciliation and trust a little bit faster. Of course, Israel being forgiven meant something entirely different to them right? Hence, Paul is kind of unpacking this gift. He's just telling them, I've got this amazing present to give you. It's kind of like uh, the Christmas gifts that we used to get in the 1980s. And in the 1980s, the most amazing Christmas gift that, that you could ever get was a remote-controlled car. It would. It wouldn't believe me. It would have been the most... If, if mom or dad or granny or granddad had given you a remote-controlled car, you would have been like so giddy you wouldn't even know how to actually unwrap it. And a remote control car in the 1980s would have been a, a remote with a wire attached to it, to the car, so that as you, you press it, the car, you have to go with it. So it's not really remote. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, you push the car along, you might as well just push it along, because it, it would go so slowly you know, with the remotes, and it, the carpets in the house from the 1980s, that was really from the 1970s, was still pretty thick, and so it would just kind of like get stuck in the carpet, but that was still the greatest gift. The problem was that granny and granddad and mom and dad, really, they hadn't actually thought about this that much, and they hadn't really read the packaging before they gave you the gift. And the packaging in the 1980s always said this, batteries not included, right, right? Isn't true? Didn't you, have, didn't you ever receive gifts as a child in the 1980s and think, ah, no batteries? Over and over again. And chapter 8 feels like Paul's like, here's the gift, batteries not included. That's what it feels like. You're like, no condemnation? Yeah. Adoption? Yeah. Batteries not included. Because it says, for I consider that the suffering of this, you're like, what do you mean suffering? Where did this come from, Paul? Why do you have to talk about suffering right now? I was so happy, I just felt adopted. I felt accepted. I thought we were on a high. Isn't this supposed to be the chapter where you get all giddy 
and you're all excited, and now you have to talk about suffering? Don't go there, Paul. Can't we go somewhere else? So this is where I, I probably need to kind of pause the entire story, pause the entire sermon, and kind of do a, a recap and tell you a story to kind of like bring you back to this point so you understand how significant this is. Because when you understand how significant this is to Paul, you'll understand how natural it was for him to dive into verse 18. And verse 18 doesn't feel like battery is not included, but actually feels like, actually, he should have said this. This is what needed to be said next. It makes sense that he was supposed to take us there after he told us no condemnation, adoption, and we are now understanding how we go through this. This is where you join me and understand what recalibration really means. I've been, uh, I've been told that the word recalibration is a very dangerous word because apparently we invented the word. Uh, I didn't realize this. <laughs> um, I didn't realize that when you use a word, you invent it. Uh, but uh, uh, when we, we started to use the word recalibration in, in meetings that we pulled together, people said, oh, what does recalibration mean? It's a very dangerous thing. It means that something's recalibrating. Yes, absolutely. Very, very intelligent observation. Yes, recalibration means something is changing and moving. And it's not about a boy becoming a man. It's not about starting a new religion. It's not about changing his name from Saul to Paul. It's not about psychological reprogramming or hypnotism. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not about a persecutor switching careers. It's about deep transformation of heart and mind. It's about capturing all that soul was, redirecting it in a beautiful journey, and recalibration is grounded in Jesus, all right? Recalibration has to be grounded in Jesus. So when you get to verse 18, you kind of say, yes, it's beautiful. Now, Saul grew up in the city of Tarsus, and Tarsus was a beautiful city. It was actually considered a rival city to Athens. You remember Athens? Athens, we talked about this. Athens was this great political city, but it was also the great philosophical city where all the intelligentsia was. There was a time when they had a huge battle and, uh, with Rome, and, uh, and so all the philosophers and intelligentsia kind of ran away for a while to Tarsus and kind of infused inside Tarsus their intelligence and all their philosophical thinking. So Paul grew up in the city of Tarsus and it was a very, very erudite place there. They thought, philosophical debate, teaching, it was all inside there. They worshipped the goddess Roma uh, because it was required. They worshipped, of course, Lord Caesar, Kairos Caesar, and Augustus, the son of God. Notice the titles that I just used, these are significant. Son of God, Lord Caesar. And you, you have to remember these titles because somebody else uses these titles as well. Son of God, Lord Caesar. If I repeat it another time, maybe you'll remember it. The best estimates were that Saul was one of 2,000 Jews that lived in the city of Tarsus with 100,000 other people who lived inside the city. Saul, of course, was uh, with his brothers and sisters, uh, would recite every day the Shema three times. He would say, Shema Israel, Adonai Elohim, Adonai Echad, Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He would recite this because this was the prayer where he would say three times a day, we worship one God. This one God is the one God that exists, that calls us to everything. Everything belongs to him, and in him we belong. So to declare that Caesar is the Lord, the one Lord, was impossible for the Jew. 
enough. It was just too much to be required. So they brokered a deal with Rome, these Jews in Tarsus. They negotiated a deal with Caesar, and they said to him, they would pray to their one God. And they said they would pray for their one God, say that we'll pray for one God, and say that Rome and its emperor would be okay. That's what they would do. And Caesar said, I agree. That's fine. You do not need to pray to me, but if you pray to your one God to ask your one God to look after me, I'll let you go. In fact, I'll let you live and let live. Now remember this. This was the ideology that Caesar said, I will let you live and let live. This is how Saul grew up. He grew up in an environment where the empire let him live and let live. We also know that Saul was a Pharisee. He was well-trained in the Torah. And this is not about being conservative or liberal, but this is more about being able to know those who were too compromised or those who actually were too strict, all right? So not so much conservative or liberal. He lived in a very open community. Everybody knew everybody else's business. There was nothing that was private. We live in a very, very private community uh, today where we actually only reveal what we want to reveal of each other. There, nothing went unnoticed. People knew where you were, people knew what you said, people knew how you behaved. Paul grew up very open. Saul, I mean, at this time, because of his tent-making business, learned at a very early age how to negotiate with people of all cultures, intelligent people, multicultural people, interfaith community. He spoke Hebrew, he spoke Aramaic, which was the language that Jesus spoke. He spoke and wrote in Greek fluently and rapidly. And he even understood Latin. So, pretty smart fellow. And you know, when you read the book and you read the, read the Bible, he quotes poets and philosophers. So, he read widely. He read all sorts of literature. He was well understood about life and the poets and philosophers of the time. But there was, inside Saul, a deep sadness. There was inside Saul a dark cloud that covered all of his hope. For the narrative of his life, he understood, began in the book of Genesis. And inside the book of Genesis, he knew in God who created Ha'adam. He knew that in God who created Adam and Eve, that they had failed. That they hadn't obeyed God. And because of their disobedience, they were now exiled. And years later, even though the covenant was renewed, these people were exiled again and they ended up in slavery. And he knew that God rescued them. And when he rescued them and took them out of Egypt, he said, I will actually now dwell among you in a new way. They built a sanctuary and God came and it, this was a beautiful way of acceptance. He said, I will let my Shekinah glory dwell among you. And he came down and a cloud filled the sanctuary. All right, this is deeply significant for Saul. Because for Saul, this was the visible sign of forgiveness. Wouldn't it be great when you want forgiveness if something like that happened? You, like, you say sorry, and then a cloud appears and just descends right there and lives there. And you're like, ah, God's living in my living room. Everything's fine. The cloud, the living room is full with the glory of God. I now know. And then when you do something wrong, the cloud disappears. You're like, mm, all right. Well, this is what Saul said. He said that the people knew that God was dwelling among them and everything was good. When Solomon built the temple, how did they know that it was accepted? Because it was filled with the Shekinah glory of God. So it was beautiful for them. They felt that they were accepted by God. However, 
they rebelled and they did things that didn't go well and God departed from the temple. So Saul knew this is because they disobeyed and they broke their covenant. Saul knew that Isaiah, the prophet, had said, look, God promises that he will return one day and he will fill this temple. And so what was needed, what was needed was revival and reformation. What was needed was strict adherence to the Torah. What was needed was next level investment. What was needed was to earn forgiveness and do whatever it takes to make God return. Did you just hear that? Saul said, I need to do whatever it takes to make God return. I need to earn forgiveness. I need to go and strictly follow this way. Saul studied the book of Daniel, studied Daniel 9, like everybody else studied Daniel 9. He knew with others that the period of exile was coming to the end and the Messiah, the anointed one, was going to come. I mean, he was about 20 years old when Jesus died on the cross. It was vibrant in his life. It was around that time. But he could not see Jesus being the Messiah because this guy, this carpenter from Nazareth, died and the temple was still empty. So how could he be the Messiah? Saul looked deep into history and he said, let me look at the examples of, in history of the teachings of my people and see where can I see the way to take this seriously. After all, he loves sincerely what God has said. When it came to food, when it came to food, the laws there were to eat food and only clean foods and even the way that we kill the animals, he looked at it and said, this is sacred. This is beautiful. We don't kill animals in barbaric ways. We actually are very sacred in the way that we do this. We do this carefully, with care. We're not barbaric about it. We actually eat only clean animals. And he said, this is actually beautiful about what we do this. When it came to circumcision, he said, this is beautiful. It's a reminder that sex is not there just for any kind of joke. It's actually about mutual love and respect. That's why circumcision existed. When it came to Sabbath, he said, this was a reminder that heaven and earth come together. And we remind ourselves that eventually this time where heaven and earth come together, we get to anticipate it every single week, a reminder that one day this time will not only be once a week, but we will live forever back reunited with God. We get to celebrate it. And so he looked at these things and thought, it's beautiful. But yet people like the Goyim, those who didn't believe, he said, they ate anything that moved. They slept with anyone who wanted it. They made Sabbath just like any other day. What was needed was revival and reformation and strict adherence to the Torah. What was needed was next level investment. What was needed was to earn forgiveness. What was needed is to do whatever it takes to make God return. This is where Saul lived. Now there were two schools of thoughts at the time Saul was around. Among the rabbis, the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. And these were the school schools of rabbis that actually taught. Gamaliel, the teacher of Saul, the mentor for Saul, he was a grandson of Hillel. And he said, look, when we teach, we teach truth, we teach what the word of God teaches, we have to teach it and let people decide. In fact, what we should do is teach and let them live. Kind of the way Caesar had actually let Saul and all of his family and all of his people actually live. Let them decide and let them live. This was Saul's teacher. Shammai, on the other hand, he said, well, we need to teach truth, but if people ignore it, well, you have to take them out and destroy them. 
destroy them and kill them by violent persecution if necessary because they do not have a right to ignore you. Saul was thinking, which side should I do this? Because I lived under the live and let live, which I enjoyed, the freedom which allows me to live, but really I, I, I kind of lean over to this other side over here. So he started to scour the stories inside here. He read the story of Phineas, how in one violent act, this guy cleaned up the house. He noticed how people in the Bible named their children Phineas in the hope that they would claim that glory. Samuel, the old prophet, named his son Phineas. His son Phineas was a horrible priest, but he named his son Phineas in the attempt that maybe he would claim some of the glory of being a, a very zealous and faithful person, but he wasn't. So he thought, maybe Phineas is the one. He looked at the story of Elijah and thought, man, look at Elijah on Mount Carmel, even though God didn't decree it, but, but after Mount Carmel, man, Elijah went and obliterated all those, those uh, prophets of Baal. He looked at Judas Maccabeus just a few years before his own life and thought, man, that guy made a huge revolt against Rome and, and attacked them and killed them and, and wow, that was fantastic. And so he put these together and chose these people. He chose Phineas and Elijah. Jesus chose Elijah and Moses. Saul chose Phineas and Elijah and Judas Maccabeus. He chose aspects of stories that matched up his story narrative that he needed. Saul now looked at the temple in Jerusalem and said, look, this is the place where heaven and earth meet, right? This is the place where God and humanity connect. This is what we do. They had rebuilt it. They had the finest marble stones. They had gathered there morning and evening for sacrifices. They gathered annually for Passover and for other feasts. They heard the vibrations of the shofar when it was blown as it echoed through the valley. They saw the sunlight dazzling on it from the gold of the front every single day. But God was not present. And what was needed was revival and reformation. And strict adherence to the Torah, what was needed was next level investment. What was needed is they had to earn forgiveness and to do whatever it takes to make God return like Abraham, like Jacob, like Joseph, like David, like Daniel, so longed sincerely to hear the voice of God utter some deep word of truth to him. And that's when you remember what we talked once upon a time about the story of Damascus, where his journey was, just like everybody else, seeking to hear God. And I, got, I, I, I say all of this because I want you to understand Saul was deeply sincere deeply sincere in his attempt to understand who God was. The last thing he could ever imagine was to have this thing take place in the way that he did. So long, though, to hear the voice of God. Now, N.T. Wright, one of my favorite authors, actually, in his biography of the Apostle Paul, page 53, writes this quote, and I, I actually, I very rarely read entire quotes to you, but I'm gonna read this quote to you because I think it's actually pretty fantastic, and I think it articulates amazingly what was happening in Saul's life at this point. Saul had been absolutely right in his devotion to the one God, but absolutely wrong in his understanding of who that one God was and how his purposes would be fulfilled. Did you hear that? He had been absolutely right in his devotion to Israel and Torah, but absolutely wrong in his view of Israel's vocation and identity. And even in the meaning of the Torah itself, his lifelong loyalty was utterly right, but utterly misdirected. 
Could that be you? Could you be absolutely, absolutely loyal but misdirected? When Saul asked to see God, when Saul asked to be forgiven, when Saul asked to be accepted again, the last thing he ever imagined was that he would see the carpenter of Nazareth, Jesus. The last thing he could ever imagine was that he would hear he who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and seemed not, he would never imagine seeing Jesus. And when the baptism of the Spirit came upon him, he did not speak in tongues, he did not prophesy, it just led him to tell everyone that Jesus is the Son of God. The phrase that everybody used about Caesar. He said, no, Jesus is the true Son of God. So for Paul, he goes and he adapts his Shema that he prayed every day, three times a day. It says in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for there is one God, he said, Father, from whom we are all things and from whom we exist, one Lord, Jesus Christ, from whom are all things, for whom we exist as well. He places Jesus and the Father all inside one. And by the time Paul makes his first journey in Acts 13, 14, Luke says, this guy is beaten up and left for dead twice on his very first missionary trip. Not beaten up once, beaten up and left dead twice. They stone him and think he's dead. And he gets up and they stone him again. For Paul now leaves his soul, has moved on and says everything is changed because I am recalibrated and I'm grounded in the name of Jesus. And he started to piece the miracle together. The wonder of all God that's doing, has done, will do. And this is why you understand that it has taken him so long to write this letter to the Romans. It's because the center for him, the world of communication, the kind of biggest social media broadcast that he could ever do is if he writes and tells this story to the entire world that everybody has been exiled because of sin. We've all been exiled. And God has a plan. And God's solution is Jesus. And it is not us, it is not our logo, it is not our committees, it is not our vision, it is not our school, it is not our church, it is not our cafe, it is not our initiatives, it is not our innovation, it is not our vision, it is not our mission, it is not all the fancy things we think of. It is only going to be, it is if we are grounded in Jesus Christ. And when we are grounded in Jesus Christ, it will transform us and it will recalibrate us. And that's why he quotes, John quotes in John 12, 32, and if I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men, all humanity, men and women to me. So Paul pens this. He knows that we're worried about acceptance and forgiveness. He knows that this is deep down inside all of us as humanity. This is what drove all of Israel. Why do you think they spent all the effort in building the temple? Because what they wanted more than anything is to say, we're still your children. And God says, you've always been my children. I never needed the temple in the first place. Remember, I told you I didn't need you to build it. You're the one who said, I gotta build it because I've got my own home. I exist bigger than a temple. You're the one who wants to contain me and control me. That's why Jesus said, look, I dwell inside you. You are the living temple. Let me come and transform you. Let me come and be with you. And they're like, they can't get it. Two and a half thousand years have gone by. And they're still waiting for the temple to be filled with the glory of God. We are still waiting for the temple to be filled with the glory of God. Are we not? 
Are we looking for the acceptance? Do we wish for the stones of left and right to say, is this right or wrong? Are we doing things sometimes saying, I'm going to bring God back. If I just will just be stricter, maybe I can bring God back. Because deep down, our sincerity, our sincerity is that we'd long to be accepted. And God says, I actually said there's no condemnation. I actually said, I adopted you. And the difficulty is that you want everything to be fine and dandy right now. Hence, I'm gonna let you know that inside this, the world has not changed entirely just yet. It is difficult. And Paul says, I know, I know it's rough. I see it's rough with his bruises all over him. He says, I see it's rough. In prison, he says, I see it's rough. In pain, he says, I see it's rough. With brothers and sisters dying, he says, I see it's rough. And so I read to you, and God said in Genesis 1, the very first chapter in your Bible, and God said, let the earth sprout forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is seed, each according to its kind, and it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, each according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which there is seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Elohim vahatob, because he said, it is good. And God said, let that be lights and expands and heavens to the separate different day and light. And let that be signs for the season for days and years. And let there be lights and expands to the heavens and given light. And it was good. And God made great lights and greater light to rule the day and the lesser light. And God said, the expanse of the heavens and give light. And he said, and this is good. Elohim vaher tov, because he said, it is good. And God said, let the waters swarm with the swarms of living creatures. And let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse. And God said, I created sea creatures and every living creature that moves, which waters are warm and the kinds of earth and birds according. God saw that it was good. Elohim vahertov, and God said, it is beautiful. And God said, there was evening and morning, and then he said, I bring forth living creatures, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to the kind. It was so, and God said, the beasts of the earth according to the kinds and living kinds. And God said, it was good. Elohim vahertov, and then God said, let us make man in our image. And let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and the birds and the heavens and creep. And God said he created men in his own image. He created of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant and yielding seed. And everything is yours. And God said, everything that he made. And behold, it was very good. Elohim vaher kol veni menhav tov. And everything was beautiful. But we have destroyed it all. We have destroyed all that was good. And we can't repair it, and we can't fix it, and we can't restore it, and we can't undo it, and we can't ignore it anymore. And so the blood cries out from the ground metaphorically. And that's why Paul says, I hear the creation groaning, and I hear humanity groaning. And we read this text right now because we're like, but I was adopted and I am no condemnation. And you tell me that we hear the groaning. Said, so, yeah, Paul says, I know. I see it everywhere I walk. I see it in the way that you treat the world. I see it in the way you treat each other. And everybody's groaning in pain. And yet inside that groaning of pain, God says, there's something I'm gonna tell you that is new that you never imagined. You read this passage so many times, I'm gonna tell you a new name, 
a new name that you've read over this passage so many times, found in Romans 8, 27. In English, it doesn't really come out so easily, but this new name is a beautiful name because in English, all he says is, and he who searches hearts, but actually inside the language, what it really means is this, the searcher of hearts is the name that I give you. This name is the name for the Holy Spirit. He is the searcher of hearts because the searcher of hearts is the one who knows you. And he is the one who groans with you. He groans with creation. He groans with humanity. And he understands. And if you understand this, what no condemnation and adoption really means is that God says, man, I'm more than with you. I am more than understanding of this. There are times in your life that you will not know how to express the pain that you experience in your life. There are times in your life that you will not know how to talk to people about pain in their life. There are times in your life that you will just sit down by somebody and just hold their hand and you wish you could heal them. You wish you could help them reconcile. You wish you could help them trust. You wish you could actually help yourself reconcile. You wish you could help yourself trust. There are times you wish you could heal. And God says, the searcher of hearts knows you. And there is a new day coming where this entire creation will be restored. But it is not to be forgotten. And if you forget it, you will spiral out of control. You will be evil to each other. You will become selfish. You will hurt each other. You will not care anymore. So God says, you have to keep your eyes. You have to recalibrate yourself. You have to be grounded in Jesus. You have to keep your eyes on the high calling. And this is what takes us.